Father, we love the words that you have given us through your Holy Spirit. Thanks for all that you've already taught us in these pages of 2 Peter. And we ask that you would show us even more treasure today. And that you would leave us humbled and craving more. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Times of crisis always tend to make people feel like the world itself is falling apart. It's a horrifying feeling, but it's also a powerful feeling, which probably explains the fascination that civilization has had with doomsday scenarios, really in every generation. This fascination heavily influences our literature, our movies, our financial decisions, even our anxieties about our kids' future. And in each scenario, in each set of trying circumstances, there's a different theory on what do I need to do to survive the apocalypse? Do I need a bunker and a gas mask? Do I need gold bullion? A stockpile of weapons or of pharmaceuticals? Do I need a generator and fuel? Or toilet paper and pasta? You see, when cataclysm is coming, we all like to pretend that we can control the unknown. But as Christians, we know that the only real question of how to survive the apocalypse is how to be found on God's side. For while the day of doom will be horrific for the enemies of God, it is a day of greatest promise for his people. Last week we read that the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the earth and the works on it will be exposed. And today we'll see that the Apostle Peter is closing his second epistle with essentially a list of what you need to survive the apocalypse. Though I think you'll find it quite different from the list of items I just read. So pretend with me that we're putting together a survival pack and we're going to collect four things in these verses before us today. They're short verses, but they summarize really all of the major themes of 2 Peter. So I hope that this sermon will serve to, to really firm up this book's place in our view of the Christian life. The first item for our doomsday survival pack is diligence. Diligence. Verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these... Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Last week, verse 13 left us with the encouragement and the challenge that according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And that's what the these is here in verse 14, the new heavens and earth, that coming realm where righteousness dwells, where Life in God's presence exists as it was always meant to be. And so our waiting for that, it's not a boring waiting. It's not like watching paint dry. It's not like checking your watch perpetually. No, it's an active waiting, even as we read about in verse 12. So we're to be diligent, to be ready for our new home. This be diligent is linked also to the, the phrase make every effort that we find in chapter 1, verse 10, and chapter 1, verse 15. So the theme of diligent effort is found throughout Peter's, Peter's letter. But what is this diligence aiming for? What's its goal? It wants to be found by God in a certain way. To be found here is judicial language. We want our divine judge to find us not guilty, but rather without spot, blameless, and at peace. I'll tackle that third term first, at peace. 
the Greek grammar here is a little flexible, and so it's possible to translate it in several different ways. Based on the context, my best guess is that the NIV and the Christian Standard Bible have it right when they translate this at peace with him, meaning with Jesus. Not that peace with other people isn't a virtue we should pursue. It definitely is. But I think that could fall generally under the blamelessness. Instead, what this verse seems to be getting at with peace is that you want God to be at peace with you. And you want him to find you pleased with his arrival rather than indulging in a hidden rebellion or shaking your fist in the air. So let me just pause here and ask, do you have peace with God? Are you among those who have obtained the faith as Peter described his audience at the start of this letter? If not, may I humbly suggest that now is the time to do business with God. Don't stay on the periphery. Don't wait because if he has no cause to make war against you on that day, that is a very good thing. On that final day, you need to be at peace with him and you need to be found without spot or blemish. This is language that's used in the Old Testament to describe the animal sacrifices that were presented to the Lord. They needed to be uh, without any physical flaws. And likewise, the priests in the Old Covenant, they were described as without blemish. And, and there are laws about how the physically maimed were excluded from the life of the temple. These Old Testament guidelines, they were instructional foreshadowing to show what type of inner condition people acceptable to God must have. They should be free from spot or blemish of sin. And that's why this same language is applied to Christ in 1 Peter 1.19. He was the spotless Lamb of God who alone could take away the stain of our evil thoughts and deeds. So what verse 14 here is showing us is that we should be diligent to be found pure because we belong to a pure Lord. As a point of contrast, the, the troublers in chapter 2 that we read about, they are called blots and blemishes. You can see that in verse 13 of that chapter. Now, no Christian is spotless, Right? And don't trust anyone who implies that they are. But it's this diligence that we're looking for. Are we quick to see our sin when others point it out? Or do we play it off as a, a misunderstanding or, or just the result of circumstance? See, instead of playing the defense lawyer, we ought to be taking up the persona of Mr. Clean. And by the Holy Spirit, start scrubbing out that spot or blemish. Now sometimes, only rarely, it isn't really a spot that someone's pointing out, but it's just the way the shadow was falling on the wall. But Mr. Clean doesn't take any chances. The extra scrubbing never hurt anyone. And this sort of dil this diligence, we're able to carry it out only because we are waiting. You simply won't be able to do these things if your hope is not the new heavens and new earth. If your home is this life in this old earth, well, you'll have no motivation, no matter what creed or confession you hold to. You'll pursue comfort more than a clean heart, power more than purity, worldly passions more than peace with God. So hope in the coming eternal homeland where righteousness dwells and pick up this diligence for your survival pack. Our second item for the end of the world is a biblical perspective, a perspective controlled by Scripture. Let's read, starting in verse 15. 
and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Peter eases into this discussion of scripture by reminding us of that perspective from chapter 3, verse 9, that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This perspective reminds us that you know, those who aren't pursuing blamelessness today, they're not automatically excluded from eternal life. They can receive mercy. And we, we can take action to be all the more diligent to confirm our calling and election. So each day that you wake up and you notice that Jesus hasn't returned, uh, which you should notice rather quickly, then there are two things that you should think. One, oh, Jesus isn't back. I have another chance to walk in repentance today, to enjoy God's mercy today. And secondly, my neighbor has another chance to repent and be saved. So whenever you think about final things, it should always, always, always steer you toward evangelism and the pursuit of holiness. This scriptural perspective is that God's patience is good news because it provides more opportunities for salvation. Either someone's coming to faith for the first time or are displaying more and more evidence of changed lives. But recall that Peter's opponents didn't see it that way. Their perspective was that the physical return of Christ would not be happening and they uh, scoffed at true Christians. They said, you know, if God has made such a promise, well, it, it sure looks like he's asleep on the job. Peter not only answers that by reminding us of the biblical perspective, but next he invokes the letters of Paul. It's likely that these scoffers were somehow using Paul's letters to back their position. Perhaps it was his teaching on Christian freedom, which they then twisted to endorse their sensual living. Or maybe they took some thoughts uh, about how Christians inherit all things with Christ, and then they they said, well, Christ has already returned in a spiritual way and he's unlocked a time of Christian power and pleasure. There are places in Paul's letters where he acknowledges misinterpretations on both of those trajectories. But we're just not sure. We're not sure what the connection is between these false teachers and the letters of Paul. But what we do see is that Peter considers Paul our beloved brother. Paul is good with Peter's crowd. And thereby, he is rightfully distanced in the mind of the readers from those wayward teachers who want to claim Paul for themselves. Peter says, no, your claim of him is only a distortion of his, his teaching. And then Peter turns to his beloved audience and says, hey, you guys need to embrace Paul's letters, even though there are some hard things in them. Understand that they are wisdom from God. Know that they are just as authoritative as the other scriptures. You see, the audience to whom Peter was writing, they were, they were very familiar and comfortable with the Old Testament, but when it came to the letters of Paul, I mean, those are incredibly intricate teachings. They might have been hard for them to understand, and the emphases of these letters might have been strange for them to accept. For us, the opposite is likely true. If you've been in evangelical churches for any length of time, you're probably fairly familiar with the writings of Paul. But what about Amos? Or Leviticus, 
or Second Kings or the second half of Daniel, do you walk away from the difficult passages of Scripture that require work? I want to challenge you in the months to come to go back to that book of the Bible that you just don't get and frankly don't really like. Because if we want to handle the Bible with integrity, then we won't pick and choose the parts of the Bible that we want to focus on. We won't form a canon within the canon of Scripture. We'll be whole Bible people. And we'll see more and more how all the pieces fit together. So get after comprehending whole books of the Bible, even the obscure ones, and and stop retreating time and again to only your favorite sections. Because are we really submitted to God's voice if we only focus on the parts of his word that we want him to say. When we fail to view all of scripture as a necessity, or when we twist it to fit with what we want it to say, then we are exposing ourselves to a path that can lead to destruction. This was true of Peter's opponents in chapter 2 who were actively influencing the church. And likewise today, famous teachers abound who gain media notoriety through provocative new interpretations that they supposedly got from the pages of Scripture. But no one stops to ask, are they using that in context? No one checks the less flashy parts of the Bible for statements that temper this new teaching. Nope, just one verse or a handful of verses that kind of say what that person is getting at, and hey, it must be biblical, we'll trust it. But these twisters of Scripture... The price at which they gain this fame for a few years, their book deals, their blog followings, their influence over impressionable people, their comfortable lives, their respect as experts, the price is infinitely high. Peter tells us that these things come at their own destruction. These people and their followers are called ignorant and unstable. Ignorant doesn't mean stupid, it just means uninstructed. There's pride here. They don't think they need instruction before they speak confidently and they set out to instruct others. But they are unstable themselves. Even as chapter 2 told us, they entice unstable souls. So don't forget your need of Scripture, the need for your whole perspective to be shaped by all of Scripture, even the writings that are hard to understand. Next, as you prepare for the day of the Lord... Get yourself some stability. Stability, verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your stability. The you here is emphatic. It's like, now you on the other hand, you who are beloved by God and by the apostle, don't be like the unstable. Maintain your stability. He says, knowing this beforehand. Well, what does he mean there? What does he know? Well, knowing that unstable people within the church will keep rising up, and by their teaching and or by their lifestyle, they will deny the return of Jesus to judge. Knowing that, take care. Take care is the main verb of this sentence. Caution is called for, vigilance, awareness, alertness. The danger is that you could be carried away with the air of lawless people. As one commentator so aptly put it, most people don't set about to err or to give themselves over to lawlessness. However, group pressure, the spirit of the age, plausible arguments, and the like can lead to one's being carried away by error. Perhaps because one is ignorant of or ignoring the fact that these proponents of the error 
are in fact lawless. I think he's on to something. You see, twisted teaching and twisted living go hand in hand. If you teach something false, your Christian living will go astray. And conversely, if you're living lawlessly, it will change, at the very least, the nuance of what you're teaching. Even if it's just the things you choose to emphasize or not emphasize, you'll be making adjustments to accommodate for your lawlessness. This word for error in verse 17, it also frequently indicates deception. There's, there's hiding going on of true intentions. And that's why the danger of being carried away is so great. We read in Galatians 2.13 that even the godly leader and companion to the apostles, Barnabas, was carried away, same word, by the hypocrisy of the legalists in that church. So, if you think that you've been a Christian so long, or you know your Bible well enough, or you've been surrounded by the right influences so that this destructive deception couldn't get to you, think again. When I think of losing stability, my mind drifts to ice skating. Imagine that you're struggling to make those loops around the rink, and then someone offers you a helping hand, only to actually make you wobble and fall hard. But then once you're flat on your bottom, they start laughing, and you realize that they were trying to make you fall all along. Well, Peter wants you to know that there are people like that out there, but he would point you back to chapter 1 and tell you to just focus on the fundamentals. One foot in front of the other. Shift your weight. Arms out for balance. We've been given everything we need to live this Christian life. And if we practice the things we've been shown, we will never fall. Keep in mind that warnings in Scripture aren't meant to undermine our confidence, but actually to increase it. In any complex activity, if you're aware of all that can go wrong, then you can actually enjoy yourself and excel to a greater degree because it's, it's those categories that, you know, even though they're bad things that can happen, now you have those categories in place. And so it's a known entity. And much of Second Peter has been doing just that for us, giving us those categories of what can go wrong. When we think about instability, uh, you know, some of you have come to Christ and you're growing, but you've got, for lack of a better term, you've got wild spiritual mood swings. Maybe because you're under severe temptation or maybe because you just need more miles behind you on this road of faith. But some days you wake up or something happens to you and you actually contemplate just throwing it away. Like, is this even worth it? Maybe it's because the church or a Christian you trusted has failed you. And that's horrible. But remember that you stand or fall not to please us anyway. You stand or fall before God. So even if everything else around you feels unstable, don't buy into the lies of unstable people who tell you, yeah, just live, live as you want. You know, this is all a bunch of rot, so just live like I do. Take care that you're not influenced like that in times of despair, that you don't give in to instability. Don't lose your stability. You need it in your survival pack. And the last item that Peter mentions to make sure you're thriving on the day of the Lord is growth. Growth, verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, it's possible to be quite stable when you're not moving, but that's not exactly what we've been called to. Our job is not simply to live out the godly 
traditions of our fathers in a static way. No, there's supposed to be movement. Do you have a godly heritage? Well, don't just sit on that or else it'll turn rotten. Because from the one to whom much is given, much is expected. This growth is in grace and knowledge, which are repeated terms from chapter 1, verse 2. They, they form sort of bookends for this whole epistle, grace and knowledge. Grace means favor, blessing, or help from the Lord. It's shorthand for God's goodness coming to us freely through Jesus so that it can pass through us freely to others. And I think grace in verse 18, it's a general reference to all of chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Grow in these fruits of grace. Knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, of course, includes experiential knowledge of Jesus as we walk with him by faith, but not only that. We know from the content of this book that it's also clearly knowledge of Scripture, which everywhere speaks of Jesus. And it's a knowledge that teaches us to discern truth from lies, discern between Christian leaders and imposters, between sincere repenters growing in grace and secretly lawless hypocrites. Christians, we have a duty laid out for us here not to remain at our current level of understanding and not to find naivete endearing. There's much at stake and we must grow in both grace and knowledge, both from the actual experience of Christian life, but also, and not separated from that, we need to learn from instruction. Have you read through the entire Bible? That's a great place to start. Take notes about the things you don't understand and ask one of your elders or another brother or sister who's proven faithful with the word in our midst. You can come to Bible class. You can join a growth group. You can study the historic creeds of the church. Seek an awareness of all the error that has happened in church history because it will be recycled again. And the ones who bring that error, they will seem so nice, so winsome, so compelling, so successful that they couldn't possibly be wrong could they? And learn to recognize lawless behavior and the excuses that people give to justify their own sin and divert attention away from their blind spots. Be familiar with this first in yourself. And as you're increasingly knowledgeable about the subtle temptations that twist your own attempts at righteousness and use them for evil, well, then you'll be well-equipped to identify those same things in those who would seek to influence you. So this growing in knowledge and in grace, it's proactive work. Often we think of safety being found simply in not crossing a line of danger. There's the line. I'm going to stay behind it. But Peter wants you to see that actually, guys, the line is disguised. And in fact, the line appears to be moving with the sway of culture and the influence of big personalities. In fact, we're better not to have our eyes on some supposed measure of how far is too far, but rather on Jesus himself. Safety is found in moving toward Jesus and growing in his likeness. And from that measure, none of us are where we should be. Imagine that you're on a cliff while a dangerous storm is rolling in. Below are floodwaters, above are secure dwellings on the high ground. And all of us are scattered across the face of this cliff on different footings. Well, it would be foolish for us to look down and say, hey, I think I'm in pretty good shape because uh, I'm higher up than that guy. Or I'm okay because I've stayed away from that 
dead-end crag over there. No, the point is that none of us have yet arrived at salvation. So keep your eyes forward and up till you get off the cliff of this life. Grow till the day of salvation. In the Christian life, you're either always moving forward or you're moving backward. There's really no such thing as just standing still and looking around. Do you remember that in our first study in chapter 1, I had mentioned that this growth is not to happen in a framework of comparison to others. There's nothing to be gained by comparison. I mean, you can't, first of all, you can't even measure someone else accurately. And the evil one will always use those thoughts either to, to tempt you toward pride or tempt you toward despair. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't learn from each other, but we need to understand that we all have different paths of growth. C.S. Lewis has this great quote from his book, Mere Christianity, where he compares a hard struggle to grow with the challenge of driving a junky car. He says, If you are a poor creature, poisoned by a wretched upbringing in some house full of vulgar jealousies and senseless quarrels, saddled by no choice of your own with some loathsome sexual perversion, nagged day in and day out by an inferiority complex that makes you snap at your best friends. Don't despair. God knows all about it. You are one of the poor whom he has blessed. He knows what a wretched machine you are trying to drive. Keep on. Do what you can. One day he will fling it on the scrap heap and give you a new one. And then you may astonish us all, not least yourself, for you have learned your driving in a hard school. So whatever starting place you've been dealt, grow in grace and knowledge, knowing that the more we grow, the easier it becomes to grow. And the more we stagnate, the easier it is to stagnate. So now we've got our end-of-the-world survival kit, Diligence for purity and peace with God, a perspective controlled by Scripture, stability in the truth, and growth in grace and knowledge. The great thing about preparing for the end of the world is that it leaves us utterly equipped for everything lesser in scope. The schemes of Satan to corrupt humanity, the scoffing by our neighbors or heretics, wars, destruction of cities, Greedy and deceitful intruders in the church, poverty, disease and pestilence, loud boasts of folly, or all the thieves and abusers that may steal your goods or health or safety or well-being. The church and individual Christians throughout the ages have faced all of these well when they have already been well prepared for the ultimate reckoning. Because living in light of the day of the Lord can leave us fearless in the face of smaller troubles, however grievous they may be. But how will we accumulate these things for our survival kit, these qualities we so desperately need? Remember chapter 1, verse 3? His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Only he can do this, and he gives it freely. It's grace from him. It's knowledge from him. You're not just out there trying to collect these in hidden places like it's points in a video game. No, you're setting about to obtain them from one who considers you beloved 
and who has already purchased these gifts for you and who is more eager to bestow them to you than you are to receive them. And that makes me want to say, to him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. These last words are an amazing way for Peter to honor his carpenter friend. The truths of the transfiguration had become experiential and had transformed Peter's life. He's now utterly transfixed by the beautiful goodness and the divine power of Jesus. So we are reminded that Jesus, the judge and rescuer, he deserves our worship now. And though false influencers have distracted and will distract from the promise of his return, make no mistake, Jesus Christ will receive glory on that coming day of eternity. Let's pray to him now. Our Lord and Savior, in the midst of whatever is going on around us, the big picture is that we are so amazed and so thankful that you have called us to share in all that is yours. We're astounded that your grace and your knowledge are for us, and we ask you to keep us stable and growing to the very end. Amen.